Okay, already so many. I'll go, go with you. Yes, ma'am. Come here. Tell us your name and then ask the question. Please sit. Hello, Swamiji. My name is Deepa. Namaste. I have a question. Um, so consciousness is the witnessing, aware, like the witnessing consciousness yes. that we are. Yes. So after, I guess, once there is enlightenment is achieved, what is making choices in our waking life? And in the example of, um, you know, if we're, you know, there's a position where somebody is hurt or, you know, through, you know, if, as doctors, you're making decisions if someone is dying. So what is, you know, how is it working? I'm confused. All right. <laughs> All right. So Deepa is asking if consciousness is the witnessing consciousness and you realize yourself as that in, in enlightenment. After that, how are choices, how are choices made? You're asking, this is the question you're asking basically? But How does it work is, really? What is making the choices? What is making the, the witnessing. choices? It's just witnessing. So wh how is it making the choices? Or what is making the choices? Is the question clear? Now, one thing we need to understand is when Vedanta uses the word chit or chaitanya, which we are translating as consciousness, a clear distinction is made between mind and consciousness. Mind includes the intellect. The intellect is the one which makes the choices right now. Even right now, when you decide whether I'll do this or I'll do, I will not do this. Somebody's heard, I will help, how will I help, all of these decisions. These are being made by the intellect. We gather data and then we think about it and then we respond. So it's the intellect, the mind, the emotions, all of that, we can use one common term, mind. In Vedanta, the term used is antakarana, inner instrument, which is different from consciousness. Normally, in day-to-day -day language, we do not make the distinction. If in ordinary English, or even in consciousness studies, when you use the word consciousness, you know what, you know, the way in which it is used is, I am seeing, so it's, this is consciousness. I am thinking, or I feel happy or sad, this is consciousness. But Vedanta will say, wait a moment. You have to be a little more subtle than that. Take an example of, say, I feel happy. There are two things are involved. One is consciousness and other is the emotion of happiness. The emotion of happiness comes and goes. I'm the same one who felt sad. I'm the same one who felt indifferent. I'm the same one who feels happy. That same one is the consciousness and the happy, sad and indifferent are the emotions which arose in consciousness and disappeared again. If you ask, how do you make a distinction between consciousness and anything else? In Vedanta it's very clear. In fact, in modern consciousness studies it's not at all clear. They are still struggling for a definition of consciousness. Vedanta, it's very clear. One of my friends who is a mathematician, he said this consciousness studies is not a valid field, not a useful field. I said, why? It's such a, you know, a field, a happening field. <laughs> he said, any field where the, the matter of study cannot be defined precisely is not a mature field. So in consciousness studies, you are unable to define. They have not come to any kind of 
uh, useful definition of consciousness, the multiple definitions of consciousness among those who are doing consciousness studies, you know, various kinds of scientists, psychologists, um, uh, linguists, philosophers. But in Vedanta, the definition is very clear. How is it clear? Uh, how, uh, what is the definition? Anything that you are aware of, anything that is an object, is not consciousness. Anything that you can classify as this, it's not consciousness. So for example, this cloth, this cloth, it's an object of consciousness. I am aware of the cloth. The cloth is not aware of me. Consciousness is that which is aware. That which you are aware of is an object of consciousness. It's an operational definition, but very clear definition. The body. Am I aware of the body? Yes. Then the body is not consciousness. It's an object of consciousness. Now go deeper. Here is the interesting thing. The difference between Vedanta and modern consciousness studies. What about the mind? What about emotions? What about memory? What about intelligence, the intellect, which decides and makes choices to do or not to do? The intellect. Are these consciousness or are they objects of consciousness? The way to decide this? Ask yourself the question, is it something that I am aware of? Are you aware of thoughts? Just now perform an experiment, think 2 plus 2 is equal to? It's too easy. <laughs> Alright. 20 into 20 is equal to? 400. Some of you are hesitating. <laughs> that is the state of math today. 20 into 20 is equal to 400. You think this thought. You perform this operation in your mind. Now let me ask you a question. Are you aware, whatever you are, are you aware of this operation 20 into 20 is equal to 400 or is 20 into 20 400 aware of you? You are aware of it, whatever you are. You are this conscious entity aware of a thought. 20 into 20 is equal to 400 is an operation performed by the intellect. Right? Yes. It's something very subtle. It's in the mind. It's in the intellect. But you are aware of it. It's an object. Vedanta will say, this is a gross object, physical object. The body is also a physical object. Thought, 20 into 20 is 400, that is a subtle object. It's a thought. It's a mental operation, an intellectual operation. Therefore, it is not consciousness. It is an object of consciousness. It is something which shines in your consciousness. Is this an accurate report of what is happening right now? 20 into 20 is 400, it is a thought in my awareness. Is it speculation or is it an accurate report of what's happening? Accurate. Yes, in philosophy they call it a phenomenological approach. Phenomenological approach is not theoretical approach. It's not a metaphysical approach. It's not um, uh, a speculative approach. Phenomenological approach means try to describe your experience as much as possible without any assumptions. Try to describe your experience as you are experiencing it now. How are you experiencing it? Clearly, I'm experiencing a, I'm experiencing a cloth. Or even more precisely, you can say I am experiencing a color, a texture. Huh? I'm experiencing a physical, this touch, warmth, pressure. 
phenomenologically internally when you look I am experiencing a concept, an idea, mental operation, 20 into 20 is equal to 400. That one which is experiencing is consciousness. But is that not the, like the consciousness plus maya? All right, we'll come there later. We're doing it phenomenologically. Okay. So that one which is experiencing is consciousness. What it experiences is an object. The object may be a physical gross object like this or this or it may be a subtle object like a feeling, a thought, a memory or an intellectual operation like making a choice. Now you can answer the question yourself that what is it that makes choices? The intellect. The consciousness itself, the Turiyam, whether you are enlightened or not enlightened, it's always the witness. It's the witness of the intellect making choices. The difference between being enlightened and not being enlightened is when I regard myself as intellect, mind, emotion, feelings, body, this is who I am. Turiyam is nowhere in the picture. That I do not understand. I do not even conceive of it. I do not, it does not enter into my um, self-concept. That is unenlightened state. What is the enlightened uh, thing? That the same intellect, the same mind understands that I am the consciousness shining upon the mind. I am not the mind. I am the witness in which the mind operates, the body operates and the world appears. That's enlightenment. I am not any of these objects. And these objects are not separate from me. They appear in me, the consciousness. There are two steps to this realization. Remember, when they ask the question, it's not only their question. These are fundamental questions which we all share in. So the insights, often people who have not asked the question, they might often benefit from the insight. So this, that's why these questioning sessions are very useful. It's for everybody. So the, the, the witness consciousness, that shines upon the operations of these body-mind complex. The enlightenment has two stages to it, or two steps, two aspects to it, let's say. First is realizing yourself as Turiyam. I am not the world, very clear. Nobody thinks I am the chair of the table. But I am not the body also, why not? Because it's an object. I am not the mind, the thoughts, emotions. Why? Because they're objects. They come and go. If I were the mind, Happy mind, a feeling, I'm happy, I'm happy. If literally that were true, what are you? I am happy. The moment you are not happy, then you would be gone. <laughs> if I'm tied to happiness, a happiness course, it will take me along with it. But that never happens. I'm there when there is happiness, I'm there when there is unhappiness. I'm there when there is indifference. Then what is that I which illumines happiness, unhappiness, indifference, and yet is none of them? It must be consciousness only. So that's the first step. I am the unaffected, unchanging, ever-present, never-absent consciousness. Which illumines everything in my life. What I call my life. Step one. Step two is, all those things I said are not me. World, body, mind, are actually in me. That's the difficult step to take. They are not separate entities. They arise in me, the consciousness. They exist in me and shine in me the consciousness and disappear back into me the consciousness. How do I understand this? One good way is to think of the dream example. 
in the dream, all the people that you experience, all the animals and creatures and plants and events that you experience as being separate from you in the dream. When you wake up, what do you feel? They were all in me. They were appearances in me. They shone in me, in my light, and they disappeared back into me. That's what happens in a dream, right? Do that for waking. So the second step will be, I'm not any of this, but none of this is different from me. They are all appearances in me. And the appearances in me cannot be different from me. Do the people and the events and the things that happened, places you saw in the dream, exist apart from the dream? No. They exist only when you are dreaming. According to Mandukya, the entire universe which is experienced, it exists only in the consciousness. It has no experience and no existence apart from that consciousness. This consciousness not only illumines the world, it also gives existence to your world. I'm using the words very carefully, to your world. So, even after the enlightenment, what will happen? The body will con um, continue to walk around, uh, the tongue will talk and the mind will think and the intellect will make decisions, choices. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I know it's a lot to swallow, but it's good to dwell upon it. And you know, actually, it's not very difficult. It's, we have made it. Thank you, Deep. We have made it difficult because we have entangled ourselves with a part of the appearance. Like in a dream, one body appears, which I say, I am this one, and everybody else is separate from me. Consciousness is not bound anywhere. How do we get bound? How do we get into samsara? It is only when consciousness imagines or conceives with the help of the mind that there is something separate from itself and then establishes a relationship with it. Friend, enemy, indifferent to it, like it, dislike it, hate it, want it. All those it, what is it? That's all of that is nothing other than you, the consciousness. But I have imagined my, that it is separate from me. Now I run after it or I run away from it. Then samsara starts. Hmm. Mandukya eliminates that. Please come. Yes. Can I just stand and talk? Uh, no, they, they'll record the things, so you have to take the trouble of coming here. Come, tell us your name and then ask the question. I'm Kuntala and I've come from Long Island. You have to use so the sorry. microphone to speak. Hi, sorry. Yeah, my name is Kuntala. I'm from Long Island and I'm very glad to be here. Uh, just continuing with the other thought. Yes. Um, we, uh, our life, or what we uh, experience in this world is a manifestation, you know, of our mind. Or mm. So how come if we are manifesting this world, then how come all of us have the same manifestation? We all see the same flower. I mean, how come it doesn't appear differently because we have different thoughts or whatever? Mm. There is some unification in true, our experiences. True. And yet, you know, when we think of ourselves as a consciousness and manifesting our world, mm. like they say, whatever you think, you project, and that's what your life becomes. So I how do understand. you reconcile yes. both? Concepts. This is a standard question. The question is like this, that if even if you give a dream example, in each of our dreams we have separate dreams. If I understand that our dreams are our projections of our own minds, but if the projection of our own minds 
then each mind projects a separate dream. But if this is like a dream, how is it that we are all having the same dream? Okay, I'll give you the answer that Mandukya gives first, then we'll come down one step and be a little more reasonable. You know what Gaurapada would say when you ask this question? This question is asked. And Gaurapada's answer is, you, would, you can ask the same question in a dream. In a dream, suppose this were a dream. You can ask the question, how is it that we are... In a dream, we would not understand it's a dream. We would think it's a waking world. You are saying it's a dream, but how are we all experiencing the same dream? Because it's one person's dream only. That person has, got, has divided himself or herself into so many people and they seem to be experiencing different things and are different people and they are experiencing the same dream and one of them comes and asks the question. Suppose, suppose you are sleeping in your bed and dreaming all this. You have not yet come to Vedanta society or in Long Island or you are in the car and you are dreaming this. You are sleeping, dozing off and dreaming this. And you're asking the question to the Swami, how is it that so many different people are dreaming the same thing about Vedanta society? Being in the same common reality. Well, that's because you are dreaming it up, the whole thing. That would be the answer in the dream. In, this, this, uh, in the context of Bandukya Upanishad, it is one consciousness alone, which appears as Kuntala, as Swami, and the other person as him or her, or all the other billions of people, in one consciousness alone, so many beings arise. And there they share a common reality. Because that common reality is projected in one consciousness. You know why this question seems to arise, why this seems to be a difficult question? It's because when you hear that I am projecting this world, what is that I you are talking about? If it is only Kuntala, this person, we are never saying that this person, this particular waker is projecting the entire universe. Rather, this waker and all the other wakers and all of us together are projections of one Turiyam, which you really are. As Turiyam, the entire universe, including all of us, including Kuntala also, is appearing in that consciousness. Then it is more acceptable. What is more difficult to swallow is that I, Kuntala, I am this little person from Long Island. How is it that you are saying I am projecting Long Island? <laughs> And all of the people in it, and all of us are experiencing the same thing in my dream. My ordinary dreams are shared by nobody except me. How is it that this dream is being shared by millions and billions of people? That you are, it seems difficult because you are one person in the whole projection. And you, as that person, you are not the projector of the whole thing. As the Turiyam, as the pure consciousness, somebody mentioned Maya earlier. Deepa mentioned Maya. So the whole theory is that through Maya, that pure consciousness projects this entire universe. But that answer I am trying to give, being a little more reasonable, bridging it. But you know what Gaurapada would say? He would say you would ask the same question in your dream. You as Kuntala, when you have a dream, suppose in a dream there is a Mandukya discussion. It would be a nightmare, I think. <laughs> a Mandukya discussion going on. Imagine this. Mandukya discussion is going on and the teacher says the whole thing is a projection. Uh, it's like a dream in which we are all acting like, like King Janaka's dream. And then you come up there and ask the teacher that uh, how is it that all of us are sharing the same dream? How is it possible? And the next moment you wake up sitting in your bed in Long Island you realize it was all my dream anyway. <laughs> The same thing is possible in your dream, right? This question which you are asking. 
and it would be your dream. And Gaudapada is not reasonable. He insists this is also exactly like that. Gaudapada insists there is only one person and that only one reality, one consciousness and that consciousness itself is you Kuntala who are dreaming up all of this. So we are all in your dream. It's not that. Yeah. You are the only reality. In that case, actually, Upanishad would say each of us is the only person. Remember, all of these are techniques of taking you to the reality. They are ways of pointing you back towards the Turiyam. Once you get that Turiyam, these questions will not matter so much. All right. I hope that at least confused you a little more. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next. Um, Please come. Yeah, please come. And there was another person at the very back who was raising his hand. Yes, be ready to come next. My name is uh, Girish, and um, this is from a, an immature understanding perspective, if, as you put it. Um, I get it. Everything is Brahman. In that case, what is the significance or, of karma in this whole thing? Is, isn't the idea of karma in, incompatible? with this paradigm in the sense that if Brahman is everything and the doer is Brahman in that sense and, and nothing attaches to Brahman, what, what, how does karma work into this? Right. It's a good question. Girish is asking about the role of karma and what we just talked about. Brahman, Aturiyam being the only reality and everything else being an appearance and nothing attaches to Turiyam. It's not. It, it's super Teflon, Does nothing sticks to it. So how will karma stick to it? And attached to this are serious questions of morality and immorality and reward and punishment. And so many things follow from this, from this question. So it's a deep question. Now, individual, the acts of individuals and the results of those individual acts, all of this is karma. What is karma? The law of karma. The law of karma is, action has its results. Actions have consequences. Good action, dharma, results in what is called punya, merit. And that punya gives a result, sukha, happiness. Bad action, what we might consider evil action, consciously done, you know, when one is consciously naughty. So, adharma, that results in what is called papa or demerit. And the result of that papa is dukkham. So this is the law of dharma, of, of karma. Dharma, punya, sukha. Good action, moral action, ethical action, results in merit, results in happiness. Adharma, papa, dukkham. Evil action, Immoral action, unethical action, consciously done, generates what might be translated as sin, demerit. And the result of that will be unhappiness. This is the law of karma. And who gets, who owns this karma? The agent, the person who feels, I did it. I am the doer. Who is this person? In our present context of Turiyam and the three aspects of the self, it's the waker. Right now, the waker. 
However much we may do philosophy, if I do something nice, I feel good. If I do something naughty afterwards, I feel guilty. So I own the action and I, I seem to get the results. Now, this waker is not the ultimate reality. According to the, um, uh, according to the Mandukya Upanishad, you are not really the waker. You are really Thuriyam who appears as the waker and functions as the waker. The waker is not ultimately real. If the waker is not ultimately real, then the waker as the agent of action cannot be ultimately real. If there is no ultimately real agent of action, there cannot be any real karma also. No real consequence also. This is what he is asking. And the straight answer to that is yes. Shankaracharya in one of his commentaries, you see this is a very profound thing because whole of Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, all the Indian religions are explicitly based on the law of karma. All of them accept, in spite of their vast internal diversities. Buddhism does not accept God. It does not accept a permanent, unchanging self. Ishwara, Atma, no. But it accepts law of karma. And what this Mandukya does is, it smashes the law of karma to bits. It gets rid of the law of karma also. Shankaracharya says, correct. Ultimately speaking, the law of karma is not right. Ultimately speaking. Just as the laws of physics are not right. Uh, ultimately speaking, yes. In what sense? What Advaita does is, it divides reality into three tiers. Three levels of reality. There is the ultimate reality which it calls Paramartika, the absolute reality. There is a transactional reality which we, which we inhabit, which is this waking reality, which it calls Vyavaharika, transactional reality. And then there is a level of illusion, error, dream, which it calls Pratibhasika. Example, right now, this reality which we inhabit, Vedanta would call it Vyavaharika, transactional, empirical, relative reality. The dreams which we have, the snake which we see by mistake on a rope, the water which we see by mistake in a desert, in mirage, illusions or the dreams, they are called Pratibhasika, illusory. And Brahman alone is Paramartika, or Turiyam is Paramartika, the absolute. What Vedanta is trying to do is to shift us, shove us from this empirical reality, identification with the entities of empirical reality into the Paramartika, the real, real, uh, the reality, Turiyam. It's like, suppose this were a dream, our dream, and somebody in the dream comes and tells you, look, all this is, we are inhabiting a dream. The reality is you are sleeping on your bed and imagining all this. Now the bed and you sleeping on it and imagining all of it, that's nowhere part of the dream. If somebody comes and tells you, you are actually on your bed and imagining all this. Now if you go around in the dream searching for the bed and where am I sleeping and where am I imagining all this, you will never find it in the dream. But that's the truth. That's the ground of this entire dream. Similarly, this entire Vyavaharika Jagat, this appearance, world of appearances, transactional world is grounded in the Absolute which is Turiyam. Law of Karma applies in Vyavaharika, in the relative world. It does not apply to the Turiyam. Vivekananda put it in a very simple way. Good, good 
bad, bad, and none escape the law. Law of karma, moral action, you get good results, happiness. Immoral action, you get bad results, unhappiness. And none escape the law, he says. Then, but whosoever wears a form, wears the chain too. Wears a form means whoever is identified with a body and mind, this body and mind, is also identified with the chain which is tied to this body and mind. What is the chain? It's the chain of past karma. The load of our past deeds and misdeeds is upon us, though we know it not. It's continuously giving results in the form of our pleasant and unpleasant experiences through our days and months and years. So that is the chain which we are tied to. Now what does Mandukya say and what does Vivekananda say? Next line. But far beyond name and form, body and mind, far beyond name and form is Atman ever free or in our language is Turiyam ever free. Know thou art that sannyasi bold. Say Om Tatsatom. In our language, far beyond, that means right here and yet transcending it, like the waking transcends the dream, the paramartika, the absolute transcends the relative. Is Turiyam ever free? No, thou art that. O Girish bold. <laughs> Say Om Tatsatom. While inhabiting this, while inhabiting this, so the law of karma will continue to appear to function and give results. But you are not affected by it. And that not affected Turiyam is the Absolute. This law of karma will continue to function just like a dream. At this level, yes. But at that level, the deeper level, the reality itself, no. Follow on thing, yes. which is that, uh, so, the, so karma exists at the waking level, if you would. Yes. And, and so, so do the laws of physics. And, yes. and so to the enlightened man, if you would, a person, the laws of physics wouldn't apply. Would, wouldn't apply as Turiyam, not as this waking person. I'll give you an example. Once Swami, oh, it's very, very the happily named Swami Turiyananda, because we're talking about <laughs> Turiyam. Swami Turiyananda was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. Once he was there with an American Swami, um, Swami Atulananda, and they were on their way to a pilgrimage in uh, in Hardwar or somewhere, I forget. And they camped one night with a lot of other pilgrims in a hut. And this is in the reminiscences of Swami Atulananda. Swami Turiyananda was a great Vedantist. So there was a discussion on Vedanta. And there were pilgrims sitting all around a roaring fire at night. It was winter. Then one of the gentlemen um, challenged Swami Turiyananda. He was saying all this is an appearance, is a dream. Uh, so your body is a dream, this fire is a dream, and this experience, what you're experiencing now is just an appearance. You are the unchanging consciousness. So can you put your hand in this fire? And Turiyananda said immediately, uh, Atulanji records, he got excited immediately and stood up and said, Yes, I'll thrust my hand in the fire. It will get burned, but that does not affect me, the witnessing consciousness. And he was about to jump into the fire when people rushed and caught him and pulled him back. Now you see, it does not violate common sense of physics. But what it says is, I have recognized myself as the witness consciousness. The body and the fire are at the same level of reality. So the fire will burn the body. The laws of physics and chemistry and biology will act upon the body. And the mind too. But 
I, the witness consciousness, I am not the body and mind. It's as simple as that. Somebody asked, I think it just yesterday Bill pointed out, a famous uh, story about Dr. Uh, Johnson, um, Samuel Johnson, I think, and the st Bishop Berkeley, who was the subjective idealist, who said everything, that's different from Vedanta, but it's still, uh, you know, he said everything is in the mind. The world exists because I experience it. And then Samuel Johnson, he says, I refuted thus, and he kicked a rock. See, it, there's a resistance, it bounces, it hurts my foot. So this is real, how is it in my mind? But don't you think the same thing would happen if you do it in a dream? In a dream, which is entirely in your mind, if you go and kick a rock in Central Park, will, it not, will the dream rock not hurt your dream foot? It will, it will. You might even utter a dream ouch. <laughs> that does not make the dream rock any more real. At the same level they act on each other. But the great discovery of Shankaracharya, what the great insight is, that which is at a lower level of reality does not affect the higher level of reality. So, whatever happens in the dream, Janaka lost his kingdom, was wounded, humiliated, frustrated, in, in, in uh, despair, in the dream, when he wakes up, none of it has affected him. I mean, still, his heart may pound a little bit, but he will say, oh, it didn't happen. Yeah. Of course, he, of course, philosopher, yes, such, yeah, was such. But the dream did not affect his waking. All the things which went on in the dream had no effect on the waking because the waking is a higher level of reality than the dream. Shankaracharya says, not one drop of, one, not one grain of sand in the desert can be made wet by the water of the mirage. You can see a whole oasis of water. It will have no effect on the sand of the desert. It remains unaffected because they are not at the same level of reality. An unreal oasis can exist with a real desert. An unreal snake can coexist with a real rope. An unreal defeat in the battle can coexist with the emperor retaining his empire and being very happy in the waking state. Unreality and reality have no clash. But does the real level of, uh, the higher level of existence, does it affect the lower level of uh, experience? Yet it does. How? It forms the basis of that. Unless you are a waker, you cannot go to sleep and dream. Unless there is a real desert, the false oasis cannot, mirage cannot appear. Unless there is a real rope, the false snake cannot appear there. Similarly, the real, the, this rope or the oasis or the desert, the desert or the waking, all of this is based on a yet higher level of reality, which is pure consciousness. The non-dual consciousness, Turiyam. This cannot affect that. But that gives, it, gives this existence. And that thing which gives this existence, that is what you are, really. Once you know that, you will continue to inhabit this very happily. You will not be affected by the problems here. Then this itself, there are beautiful verses. Nandanavanam, this itself becomes the garden of the gods. Nandanavanam is supposed to be in, um, in heaven, the garden of the gods. This world, samsara of terrible ills and frightening samsara becomes your, your pleasure garden. Neither disease nor disappointment nor frustration can affect you. Um, could you let me know when the food is ready? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just a minute hold the qu uh, question. Yes, the gentleman had a question. Yes. Yes. Please come and ask the question. Well, thank you. Thank you, Swami. Can you tell us your name and ask? Uh, yes, I'm uh, Ron Johnson, coming from New Jersey. So I have, uh, 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 interesting enough, a confusing question, and that is, sort of, what is confusion, and 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 what 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 gave rise to it, and sort of sort of attached, uh, sort of connected with that is the turium that we we are we are aspiring to be or experience what what why are we separate from it and or and how did we sort of become separate from it actually this is the crucial question sit there we'll until we okay. finish talking about it yeah. basically what ron is asking is that doesn't the Manduki Upanishad, it seems to be telling us that all of this which we are experiencing now, the troubles we are undergoing, at the root of all of this is confusion. Where does this confusion arise from? Ah, confusion is another name of error. So, so we've got it by rote now. <laughs> there can be only... In Vedanta, it's very simple actually. To any question in Vedanta, you can answer either Maya, or this confusion, or, or Brahman. These are only two words you can throw. It will be a correct answer, either this or that. I remember when I was a very little kid, um, a cousin of mine, a sister, um, we were all being taught basic arithmetic by our grandfather, who was a strict disciplinarian. And she didn't get it at all. I still remember. Uh, he posed a problem and said, what are you going to do here? Now, there are only a few options. And she looked at his face carefully and said, add? And he glared at her, what? No, 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 subtract, subtract, subtract. <laughs> and he said, what? And multiply, multiply, what? And she, uh, she says, no, 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 divide, divide, divide. What? And she cycles back, add? <laughs> There are only four options available, so it has to be one of the four. Yes, confusion is at the root. According to Vedanta, at the root of all our problems is a confusion. Confusion between what and what? Between the real and the unreal. We, the real consciousness, we have mixed in elements of the unreal body and mind into our concept of the self. Who am I? I am this conscious being who is body and mind. There are two parts here, self and not self, atma, anatma, consciousness and not consciousness. And we have put them together out of confusion and we say we are this whole thing. This confusion, this alone is our bondage. Nothing has tied us to nothing in this world. We feel we are tied in this world. And this, this, the knot which ties us, the rope which ties us, we are tied by the rope of confusion. So, 
untying this rope of confusion requires us to remove the ground of this confusion. What is the ground of the confusion? The ignorance of our real nature, Turiyam. Once we realize the ignorance that we, that, that we are Turiyam, then the mind and its confusion, they all become objects to be seen separately from us. And we are free of it. The whole of Mandukya Upanishad and indeed the whole of Vedanta is nothing but clearing up the confusion. There is no physical bondage, nothing which ties us actually to this body or to this mind or to this waking world. We are always all the time free of it. But only thing that seems to bind us is our own confusion. In Hindi I'll tell you and then translate. And Swami put it very beautifully. He would look at us and smile and he would say, To bandhan kya hai Mahatma ji? What, what is bondage? What is bondage? And he would give us the answer, Bevkufi matra. In Hindi it's a more pungent word, confusion is a better word. Bevkufi means stupidity. Our only, only bondage is stupidity. That we, we, are, we don't know the reality. Bevkufi matra. I heard a story of a great Swami. There is a whole ashram established in his name in, in Mumbai, Prempuri Ashram, a big ashram. Um, when he became a monk, in his old age, after he had been like a traditional Hindu, married with children, and then afterwards he became a monk in his old age. He wandered in the Himalayas, desperate for enlightenment, liberation. <coughs> One day, he was sort of sitting sadly under a tree, and this old lady came up and said, my child, why so sad? What is your problem? And this newly minted monk, he said, I want to be free of bondage. I want to be free. I want to be enlightened. I want to be free. The lady said, you want to be free? Show me your bondage. Show me your bondage. What are you in bondage to? What are you attached to? What are you tied to? Are you tied to your wife? And then he said, no, she died. Are you tied to your children? No, they grew up and went away. Your house, your property? No, that's all gone. I've given it up. I'm a monk. What are you tied to? Are you tied to the body? No. This is a child, a young man, an old man, and now it's uh, an old man's body. It will uh, age and die. How are you tied to it? It's changing before your own eyes, before your own experience is changing. Are you tied to your mind? Imagine the mind you had as a little, little boy. Imagine the mind you had as a young man who wanted to get married, get a job and have a family life and enjoy life. Are you tied to the mind of the middle-aged person who had a wife and children and affairs of the world and a lot of anxieties? And a lo All those minds have gone. Now you have the mind of a monk. You have renounced the world and trying to find God and enlightenment. This mind also will go away. Every day in the night it goes away. When you go fall asleep it goes away. You are not tied to the mind also. Where are you tied? Show me your bondage. Our only bondage is confusion. In, in, uh, um, in Vedanta they give a nice example. I'll give you the example and we'll end with that. The example is that there was... In India you have the traditional washermen who carry the clothes your, our clothes, you give them to wash, they put it on a donkey, they will take it to the um, r r river and then they will 
you should not see how they treat, treat your clothes. They will pound it and uh, on the river, and, but they really make it clean. It really works. And then they spread it out on the rocks. Um, you'll see thousands of clothes out on the river bank on the rocks. And they'll wait the whole day until the clothes are dried. So that's a natural dryer, natural uh, washing machine and natural dryer. And then they will pack it, they'll fold it nicely, put it on the donkey and bring it back home and next day go and deliver it to your home. Now this man who is to do this for his living, one day when he came to the river bank with the clothes on the donkey, then he suddenly saw to his horror he had forgotten to bring the rope with which he would tie the donkey to a tree. Now he would have to go all the way back home because he can't do his work if the donkey is untied. It will just wander away. He's a poor man. He can't afford another donkey. It's like a, uh, getting a new SUV or something. <laughs> so what does he do? And there's this gentleman walking past, obviously a well-educated person, and this poor man asks, Sir, what can I do? And the gentleman says, Oh, don't worry. All you do is go near the donkey, make sure he's seeing you, and act as if you're tying the donkey. <laughs> That'll work? Yes, it'll work. So this man does that, you know, unloads the clothes and goes near the donkey, and then as if taking out a rope and then putting it around the donkey's neck and tying it to the tree, acts, and the donkey watches. <laughs> sort of flicks its ears <laughs> and this man goes to the riverbed and to wash the clothes and keeps looking back at the donkey, donkey standing there, perfectly still, no movement. Oh, wonderful. And then when the time is in the evening, it has come, he has packed up all the clothes, he loads on the donkey and tells the donkey, now move. Donkey doesn't move. <laughs> now, how do I get the donkey back to back home? <laughs> So he rushes to the house of that gentleman who lives nearby and says, Sir, sir, you told me a good thing, but what black magic is this? The donkey doesn't move. <laughs> and the man says, don't worry, just pretend you are untying the donkey. <laughs> and he goes there and he unties, pretends, and the donkey is watching. And then he says, move, and the donkey moves. We are not tied. We are, we are nowhere there is any bondage. We are not tied anywhere. But we think we are. And then we suffer. What Vedanta does is, it generates that bondage and then it unties it. Then we get the feeling we are now free. <laughs> what does it do? It tells you, here's the waker, the gross aspect of the self, here is your waking world, tying the donkey. Then the dream, is the dream world, and then deep sleep from which emerges the dream and the waking. And this is a nicely tied donkey. <laughs> then it comes and tells you, you are not the waker, not the dreamer, not the deep sleeper. You are the unaffected witness of all that. Untying the donkey and lets you free. If you really think about it, you realize that I never was in bondage. When one gets enlightened, it's an interesting thing in Vedanta, when you realize when you get enlightened, you don't feel that I was in bondage, now I am enlightened, I am free. Rather, you feel, I was never in bondage. I was always free. I didn't realize it, now I realize it. That's all. Then this very question of the confusion itself will not come. Where does, if you ask the question, his precise question was, where did the confusion come from? There is no answer to that. Where did error come from? Ignorance. Where did ignorance come from? No answer to that. But the practical problem is it's there and you can get rid of it. That's a very good note to end the discussion on. Um, I know there were other questions.
we can take that up later on downstairs thank you very much thank you